1: Ours and theirs.
2: Dr. Wendy Mogul is a practicing clinical psychologist, New York Times bestselling author of books including The Blessing of a Skin Knee, The Blessing of a B-minus, and most recently, Voice Lessons for Parents, What to Say, How to Say It, and When to Listen. She's also an international public speaker, a frequent guest expert on national media, and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of Parents Magazine. Wendy weighs in issues of the day, from talking to kids about death to embracing the chaos of messy rooms, and on the topic for which she is best known, and we should add, which she has been speaking and writing about for far longer than it has been in the spotlight, the Protection and Promotion of Self-Reliance, Resilience, Accountability, and Exuberance. We are thrilled to have you, Wendy.
3: Thank you, Cara. Thank you, Vanessa. It is such a joy to be in person oh. with humans <laughs> totally. talking about a subject we're all interested in. This is a uh, longed-for opportunity and delight. It is so nourishing, and I love
1: that one of the things that you promote is exuberance. That is such a wonderful trait. I have one exuberant child and it's my greatest goal not to let her exuberance be dimmed by the world. And that's a, it's not a word you actually hear very often in our vernacular. So I love that. I devoured voice lessons, absolutely devoured it. I swear to God, I think I read it in one day. And mostly because it is a book about how to communicate with kids of all different ages. Now, Wendy, I have four children. I have an 18-year-old son, an almost 16-year-old son, a 13-year-old daughter, and an 11-year-old son and so i am at a variety of different stages that you discuss in the book and i literally was just inhaling all of your all of your guidance so first of all thank you for writing such a helpful interesting accessible book as you describe in voice lessons it is about learning to speak the ever changing dialect that evolves as a child matures and what I love most about that framing of the book, and you revisit that concept throughout, is that kids change. It also requires us to change, and it requires us to meet them where they are and what their dialect is, to use your words, rather than their meeting us where we are. And that reframing of it, of us as kind of visitors to a foreign land, was actually deeply comforting. Because it meant, okay, you don't know how to do it yet, but you are going to learn how to do it. You are going to learn this new language. So thank you for offering that very comforting and affirming framework. Since our podcast is called The Puberty Podcast, I'd love to focus on the sort of tween and teen age group. And for our purposes, depending on biological gender, that can be kids anywhere from eight females from age eight up to males and females into their late teens and early 20s. So that's the age group that we're going to, we focus on. And we're thinking about the adults who care for them and love them, parents, teachers, coaches, camp counselors, all of that. So with that in mind, talk us through the first kind of quote unquote, voice shifts. And I know you talk about tone and body language and voice includes all sorts of verbal and nonverbal communications. But when we're thinking about a kid who's entering the tween years or entering puberty, what are the voice shifts that need to happen as we
3: start to meet those kids where they are? I want to go back to what you said about exuberance, because one thing we missed during pandemic isolation is... Collective effervescence, and it's a term from Emile Durkheim, and it has to do with laughing in a group and what that does to your mirror neurons, that we vibrate together. And there was a beautiful study done at University College London of people—do you know about this? People watching the musical Dreamgirls, and they hook them up to monitors— And their heartbeats synchronized and they're breathing. Yes, you could you you will see this research. We are we are social animals. The tricky part about preteens and teenagers now is that they are a lot of them are very sophisticated in their language. They have a lot more energy than you do to argue about anything. They're really good little attorneys. The girls kind of download all their problems to you, but don't. they're not interested in your solutions because they find them ineffective and kind of um, ignorant. Annoying. The annoying. <laughs> mom. <Jeez>. Downright wrong. <laughs> and the boys... Go into their room, they close the door, and your paranoia grows like a mushroom cloud. Mm -hmm. The tricky part is they are sophisticated with holding, and they are still very young animals in part. And that's why I mentioned the collective effervescence, because this is a human trait that is instinctive to experience exuberance and joy and delight and fun in a group. And that's one thing teenagers are fantastically good at, and they got deprived of it this year, and then their parents were saying, I want you on that screen all day long, but not for video games, just for Zoom school. Boys, that the boys should sit for seven hours. It's really... Once they enter puberty, it's a fantastically entertaining ride. And you want to go on that roller coaster ride with curiosity, with calm, just like the breathing you had us do, Vanessa. And with compassion. And at the same time, you don't want to be a dopey, dangerous parent who is getting gaslit. Gaslit. Um, The new
2: most popular word in the English language. Yes. Yes.
3: So another really fun thing to do every single day is to go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary online and it has the word of the day. And I I would not be at all surprised if gaslit or gaslighting was not in the last two weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean, gaslighting, that's a whole conversation because I think often. Teens gaslight their parents and parents gaslight their
3: teens. say more about that. How do parents gaslight their teens? Love that. The
1: constant refrain is it's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Don't make such a big deal out of it. Don't be so dramatic. And what we always tell parents is if it feels like a big deal to them, then it is a big deal. And to downplay that only teaches them that if they express their emotions to us, we're gonna minimize them. And I think one of the things that I find so upsetting in our culture is how girls in particular get vilified for, you know, large expressions of emotion, of, as you say, that the download is great. It's what you do or say in response to the download. Do you validate? Do you not validate? You know, all of those things. And we're so busy managing each other's emotions rather than, as you say, being calm, being curious and being compassionate. I mean those 3 Cs are just such guideposts, Wendy.
2: I will I will say that the word gaslight is used so often that my husband and I actually looked it up the other night to say what is it really, you know, Ooh, we, so we toss it around, right? Yeah. So the actual definition that we found was essentially my behavior is your fault. Mm-hmm. That's what it boils down to. And I couldn't agree with you more, Vanessa, that it goes both ways in parenting and loving and raising kids throughout puberty. In both directions, my bad choice or my behavior is because you did this, which is, of course, not really what's going on at all. But it's a very convenient excuse for how people behave.
3: Adolescence is the period of the greatest anguish and ecstasy Mm. in all of life there is and I'm always defending the crush to parents and I I had a parent recently say to me you know I don't know if she's really pushing as hard as she could in her tennis because she has a terrible crush. Parents are older most of them than their parents were when they had Mm -hmm. children And one of the things that happens when kids enter puberty is some grief and heartbreak, and it's often unconscious. For example, with mothers and sons, this was the best boyfriend that mom ever had. He kind of thought she was perfect. He has lots of hair, shiny hair. (laughs) Unlike her husband. (laughs) Exactly. Doesn't have a gut yet. (laughs) And just follows her around, talking all the time until he enters puberty. And then she lost her fantastic boyfriend. But I'm trying to make a point about how that relationship between the parents is an an essential nutrient for the children.
1: So let's take that example. That's a perfect example of how we have to change our communication style to meet the reality and the the situation of our kid, right? We had a super chatty 11-year-old boy who wanted to give us every fact and piece of data he could get his hands on. I loved your characterization of boys that age in the book because I have one living in my house who's just like that. And it's fascinating and amazing and exhausting. And all of a sudden, he goes quiet as Carr writes so beautifully and helpfully in Decoding Boys, which like you, Wendy, I have underlined and stickies all over every single page of that book. So what do we do? How does our conversation style or how does our quiet or how does our approach have to shift from the child who woke up in the morning and came to the breakfast table and was like a little chatterbox and snuggling and hugging to the teenager comes down at breakfast and doesn't look us in the eye and slumps down in his chair and sits as far away from us as possible. What do we learn from that? How do we approach that, Wendy? One of my
3: favorite examples of that is the teenage boy who came to meals wearing his hoodie over his head and turned his chair away from the table. Oh, amazing. And when the parents told me about it, I said, "This is adorable. <laughs> you know he he wants to be there with you, but it's kind of unbearable because he thinks you're giving him the stink eye." Oh my god, the symbolism of that. I just loved everything about it. He was there with his arms crossed, but he turned his chair around. And the antidote to that is instead of being a suspicious, anxious, prying, doom forecasting and doom scrolling adult to be enchanted with their enchantment. Mm. And these boys who are not talking a lot, there are some things they're very happy to talk about with tremendous enthusiasm. And it may not be something that you think is going to get them in early decision to the college you would like them to go to. You can think of them as, I think I've wrote about this in The Blessing of Skinny, as a flower that came, a seed that came in a packet without a label and you don't know what season it will bloom and you don't know what flower, kind of flower you're going to get. But every stage of its development is interesting. And these boys are so so passionate and excited. And I like to think of them all as slightly on the boy spectrum. So not diagnosable, but they don't express themselves with a the number of words. For example, listen to me right now. So we women, we talk, 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 talk with each other. My daughter recently was describing to me the drunken girls in a bathroom, and the way they support each other. Oh my God, you look so, much so love. beautiful. I love your dress. Where did you get it? <laughs> and these are girls who don't know each other. Totally. Yeah. Share the lipstick, and reassure each other. I
1: mean, I received no less than five compliments in a bathroom from women I did not know on some item of what I was wearing. How long ago? Like last week.
2: That's amazing. It
1: was really, and I was like, that's so lovely. I felt great. They were dishing out compliments. It was like totally fascinating. Sorry, that was an
3: aside, Wendy. Well, day. before I came up here, I met a woman in the bathroom downstairs. We are now best friends. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had listened to a podcast that her company produced. And I said to my daughter, what do men and boys do in the bathroom? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Oh, but oh I, I do. Oh, please tell us because I've asked that question. Yes, great. What's the answer? They pee. Yeah, yeah. And
2: then they move on. <laughs> and sometimes they wash their hands. And that's really <laughs> Mostly what, not. I mean, but you are right on, Wendy, because the experience of understanding what happens in the mind of a boy who has gone quiet, parents sometimes don't believe that there is an animatable world for these boys. But all you need to do is catch them interacting with their friends. Absolutely. Right? It's not... Your child, it's you. (laughs) And I think that's part of the problem is parents take it so personally, but it's not meant to be personalized. It is a developmental phase that is fueled by probably some mix of hormone and normal brain chemistry and neuronal development. And then all the social stuff that we put onto all of it and what we expect from boys and especially what men expect from their sons. And all of it kind of ladders up to be this, This inevitable outcome, and you're so right, you get your son talking about the same thing that his pal got him talking about, and he will talk. He really will.
3: This is what I say to the parents who come to see me who are worried that their son maybe is going to be a serial killer, like at minimum. (laughs) And I say, what do the teachers say about them? Because they want a big diagnosis, and they want a treatment plan, and maybe to send them to like, tough love boarding school. And I say, what do the teachers say about him? And very often it's, oh, the the teachers really like him. And the teacher says, I can't wait to teach Jordan again in, in Spanish too. And they say, we think that he's clearly a sociopath. <laughs> and I say, okay, how does he treat his grandparents? And they say, really nicely, but his grandparents give him money. So then I say, okay, how about little cousins or maybe a little kid, you know, that you meet in the park or on vacation? They say, he's really, really nice with little kids because we think he's so immature. And it just keeps Mm. going on like that. The capacity to cherish the boys, to be a captivatable parent, and to trust. That it's all a phase because the good stuff is a phase too Mm -hmm. with the boys and the girls. It just comes at different times and in different forms.
1: Yeah. So far in my own parenting journey or child rearing journey, as you put out and point out in the book, the distinction, the cultural distinction in that shift, I love raising teenage boys. I love because they're like a code to crack. How do you figure out and reading your book has helped me enormously go further along in that journey, but how do you figure out what they're going to actually get excited about, what they're going to talk about, what they're willing to share with you or say to you, you know what, I actually don't want to talk to you about this anymore, which to me is just as important as the times they're willing to engage in conversation. So let's take the boy in the hoodie with his back turned to the table and I'm the parent sitting on the other side of the table, staring at the back of my childhood. Where do I start, Wendy? What? How do I begin that conversation or whatever it is, even if it's not a conversation? How do, how do we
3: start that? One of the things I say to the parents is the barometer of rudeness is so different than mm. when any of us were growing up. And in part... That's because we didn't know our parents as well as parents know kids now. There's a wonderful intimacy. And then during the pandemic, it got a little fetid in the house. There just wasn't enough air or space. But when the parents say to me, we think he's clinically depressed, I say to them, it's just what you were talking about before. What sounds do you hear coming out of his room when he's playing video games with his friends? And they say, oh, he's always laughing and he's so lively. So that's the baseline of confidence that this human animal is exuberant, is lively, is healthy, is engaged. The hardest people to engage with are parents. And the heartbreak of boys is that, let's use the example of heartbreak. So it's sort of like the bathroom. When girls decide they're going to dump or get dumped by a boy that they've been involved with. They have their whole posse of girls to process it with instantly. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was never good enough for you anyway. And the boys, they're just—they're ashamed of their feelings. They don't have as much language for feelings, just vocabulary to describe the different words. And so they're more isolated. I think that the heartbreak hurts them more, but there's shame around it and some denial of it. When the boys are being open hearted in talking to you, you drop whatever you are doing. You listen, and with a kind look, but not pity in your eyes, you can say, Oh, Tell me more without interpretation, a fix, a solution, minimizing exactly what you're saying, Vanessa. Not minimizing it, but holding it with your son.
2: And and I want to add in here that while you have written specifically about boys and girls, and I have too, that when we gender this conversation. Yes. It's an average. There are kids who live on along a whole spectrum of these types of descriptors. There are plenty of girls who don't have the language. There are plenty of boys who have so much language. I want them to come in and, and do a language class. You know, they're really. And I think this notion of sort of where do we put the gender And how much can we kind of classify according to gender? The beauty of being in in 2021 is that the generation of kids who are growing up today, Gen Z, the new alphas, they are growing up to see those lines very blurred. And I think my experience as a pediatrician is that I think as they get older and start going through some of these stages, we are going to be able to see what is hormonally driven, what is temperamentally driven, and what have we socialized into our kids that this next generation has decided to unsocialize in the
3: best kind of way, right? And this is becoming enlightened. It's what I was saying before about what a privilege it is to live at this moment. These kids are very wise about Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And the gender, it is almost time not to be using these words at all. And temperament is a word to use, Mm -hmm. but again, that shifts. And they are opening our eyes to how nimble and flexible we can be in characterizing human traits and the skills needed for interaction. Mm
2: -hmm. That's right.
3: That's right.
2: Can we, I want to take that notion of nimbleness and apply it to something that you wrote about in the book, having to do with the earlier onset of puberty, which is something that I talk and write about a lot. And it's a big point of sort of common ground with you. As I was reading about your characterization, my experience with parents in the office, my experience with parents whether I'm speaking to them or I am consulting with them, is identical to the experience that you described, which is parents are both overwhelmed by the notion that puberty is starting earlier and they really push back. You know, yeah, sure, it's happening earlier, but not my kid. Or, you know, if they don't see it, it's not an issue for them. And I'd love to know from your perspective, how that impacts these voice lessons. And how how do you best communicate with parents who are either struggling with a child who is physically a very early bloomer or parents whose child is not and therefore they are quite certain they have not moved
3: into this later stage? The denial is fascinating to me. And I really hammer at home and I say 10, 10 years old. I mean, you may have change that yeah. slightly by now. Yeah, little, and tiny. The look on their faces. It's a combination of grief and panic. And it's what psychologists call over- overdetermined because it reminds parents of their own mortality a little bit, the loss of what they considered innocence. And they don't see it as promising voluptuous, lusty, delightful, rich, filled with new kinds of pleasure. So the sex education that goes on in school, we know, is disease prevention, education, and... Pregnancy prevention. Pregnancy prevention, disease prevention, and it's so much like the D.A.R.E. program, the way drug education used to be Completely completely fear-based instead of how exciting to be entering this new phase. And again, we go back to the flowers and plants. This, is, this flower is looking different now.
1: I mean, our whole goal here is to shift the perspective, right? To say, hey, this doesn't have to be a period in your family's, sorry for the pun, um, no, in your family's not. life. I'm not, i am become an accidental punster. You can be excited for this. Your kids can be excited for this. It can be joyful. It can be empowering. It can be all of those things. And if you start dumping all that fear on your kids, they're going to inherit, you know, that feeling. I mean, the other thing that we talk a lot about is they're not just, you know, worrying about their mortality and mourning this stage. They're also bringing all their shit into the room, right? So their experience with what puberty. <laughs> is informing every word they say to their kids about puberty. And if they had a bad experience with puberty, their kids entering puberty is terrifying to them. It's painful, it's traumatic. I mean, we had Nick, my brother on, talking about Big Mouth and talking about his puberty or as a late bloomer. And he said to us, I am sitting here, I've done a show about puberty and I am sitting here feeling viscerally the pain and trauma that I felt as a late bloomer, you know, 30 years ago. So talk to us a little bit about how we can help adults who love and adore their children, who only want the best for them, but are bringing that grief, that sadness, that worry, that baggage into the conversation, into the room. How can they shift? How can they shift away from that, Wendy?
3: Puberty, and this is going to be gendered again, but this one's biological the early developing girls and the late developing boys suffer the most. First of the first, last of the last. Yep. And to be aware of what your experience was informs you about how you would like it to be different for your child in so many areas.
2: We literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend.
1: We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious and I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies.
2: So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking and cleaning you can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press, pause, or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So
1: to order, go to com slash puberty50 and use the code PUBERTY50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is PUBERTY50 at com slash PUBERTY50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately, I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep. And I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family
2: and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause.
1: We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you.
3: One thing, and this is a funny, a little delicate spot, if you get too celebratory and public about Mm. it, it can be deeply humiliating, for example, to your daughter. And we do a lot of, and parents would not face brag about this one, but it, again, there can be some version of that. So we want to Hold it close and allow our daughters and sons to lead. Rather than, and this is the concept of counterphobic, if you're upset about it, then you're going to set off fireworks. She had her first period. She's only nine and a half. Yay!
1: Perfect example. My colleague Mary Pat grew up in a family where they didn't talk about puberty or sex or anything. And I'm I'm not sharing anything she doesn't share herself publicly. And so she sees herself as an overcorrector. And so she was walking down the street with her daughter, who at the time was, you know, 10, and she's, you know, vagina this and vagina that. And And her daughter, who's a very private person, finally turned to her and said, Mom, can you please stop saying vagina on the street? It's embarrassing. And she, you know, she's a social worker. So she immediately recognized exactly what she was doing, which was overcorrecting. But that what did you call it? Counterphobia? Is that what
3: counterphobic.
1: You? Count, yeah. Counterphobic. Counterphobia. Um, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, that's that's fast. Like we're trying to do the best. We're trying to make the shift. We're trying to be what our parents weren't. But then in that overcorrection, it can also be negative or undermining or embarrassing or, you know, whatever and the term it goes, is.
2: It goes to what Wendy said in the very beginning, which is, you know, essentially it's very hard to get it right here.
3: Oh. <laughs> you will not. That's why be
2: we have a kidding. podcast, Cara, you because it's hard not. to get it right. It's hard. And and by hard, I mean, basically
1: impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always like to say when you mess up, not if you mess up, but when you mess up, take a do over, which you write about in the book, which is like the absolute parenting tenant above all of other all. parenting tenants. Tagging on to the discussion about girls ending puberty earlier, which is something I saw with seven and eight year olds in our dynamo girl classes, girls with breast buds and, you know, body hair and all of those things, which I know Cara is not technically puberty, but, you know, were signs to me that girls' bodies were changing and developing earlier than I expected and that schools aren't teaching puberty often till girls, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, right? right? A few years. I mean, many, half the girls probably have their periods by the time the schools start teaching about it. That's Um, correct. In the book, you talk about how important it is for fathers or men living in households with girls they're caring for not to back away during this stage, that it's so often they do back away and and they sort of, quote, give them space or whatever. Talk to us about what's hard for dads when their girls enter the stage? And why is it so important that they don't back away from them?
3: I have had so many adult psychotherapy patients who have said to me, my father was my best friend until I entered puberty. (gasps) And these were women who were all having problems in relationships with men. Mm in part because of that they were trying to recreate something that had been so precious to them that they had lost it's really a tricky landscape right now for fathers we don't want to body shame daughters we don't want to intrude on them or or do things that aren't dignified And again, this is gendered, but many of the families I see, the dads are able to be more playful than moms because moms carry so much of the schedule, the responsibility, the calculations, the when to visit the pediatrician. And to remain your daughter's buddy is a tremendous, and I don't want to call it inoculation because the boys are not a virus or not a disease, but it gives her a place to stand that feels confident around men. And a couple of ways to do that are very specific. Remember the names of her friends. And I'm not sure if it was in this book, but one of the books I talked about this, where when I was growing up. Mm, You do. Yeah. Yeah. If you asked a man what grade his child was in, he would sort of scratch his head and say, I don't know, fifth? And my father, who was a really, really good friend to me, I'm sure he would have done that too. I walked to high school every day with my dad from our apartment to my school, and we talked about business and we talked about life. And it was just such a good foundation for me in my relationship with men in business and with men in friendship. So you remember the names of her friends. You laugh at her jokes. You keep an open mind and are not scornful or dismissive of the music she likes. And one of the first things that girls do is they get crushes on, you know, pop stars or rappers, and it... Fathers, again, can be, and this one's unconscious too, they can be envious, competitive, and then project that this is the kind of guy she's going to be with. This is just that moment where she's falling in love in a very safe way. It's with a person she doesn't know. You start with celebrities Mm -hmm. and you move on to reality. So that friendship Any kind of activities fathers and daughters can do together, go on trips together. But for fathers to remain interested, it's just like I want both parents to be interested in the boys. Very, very specific passions for the girls. And it's not just sports. It's uh, and not just music, but also fashion In my experience, the feedback I get from fathers
2: is that the hurdle that stops or slows the dynamic is they feel that they didn't have the body parts and they didn't go through the same transformation that their daughter went through or is going through in puberty. And therefore, because they aren't on the same physical team, so to speak, they feel very much at a loss. And it's something I get male from letters from fathers all the time who read my books to understand what's happening physically for their daughters so that they can then have conversations. And while that's a very beautiful thing, and I love that they do that, a daughter's much more than just her body parts. We had a conversation uh, with Valerie Schaefer, who was the original author of The Care and Keeping of You, and that was her line, was that we're much more than the sum of our body parts. And so that massive physical transformation that's happening in front of a father's eyes doesn't have to be part of the relationship. It can live on its own. I think another hurdle is the emotional roller coaster, which looks and feels very foreign. It is estrogen in the brain and testosterone in the brain do very, very different things. And, you know, we keep saying gendered, not gendered, but this is just neurochemical. Yes. The way that brains exposed to estrogen will then emote. The mood swings that will result from that look and feel different than the mood swings that result from testosterone surges. And those mood swings, when they are governed by estrogen, look very scary sometimes to a person who has never lived those mood swings governed by estrogen. That, the body shifts and the estrogen shifts to me, are probably the two things that tee up to land those dads in your office with those worries. And it's more than that. I mean, it's not just dads, it's teachers, it's coaches,
1: Mm. it's counselors, right? Because everyone is afraid. They're afraid of two things. They're afraid of a girl who looks 15, even though she's 11, because a 15 year old who looks like that becomes a sexual creature, whereas 11-year-old is still chronologically an 11-year-old and wants to be treated like an 11-year-old, even though she has full breasts and pubic hair and is 5'6 and all of those things. So part of it is they're afraid of this sexuality, which frankly isn't there yet, even though they lo- they look like it should be. But secondly, they're afraid of the emotional volatility. And one thing that my friend Rachel Simmons writes about in Curse of the Good Girl is that people stop giving girls constructive criticism because they're afraid of the response they're going to get, the tears, the quote unquote drama, the anger. And that actually does a real disservice to Mm. these girls because I don't know if you all can relate to this, but it took me 20 years of marriage to learn how to take constructive criticism because I never, no one ever gave it to me because they didn't want to deal with the emotional volatility. And I wish that my coaches, my teachers, my parents had weathered that roller coaster, that storm a little bit more and given me that feedback then so that I had, you know, the ability to handle it over, over those years. And I think it's really, it would serve us all well to get better, which is a lot of what the book does, Wendy. I mean, it teaches us how do we handle it? What do we say or what do we not do? say. And I would love, love, love for you to talk about the importance
3: of keeping quiet sometimes. So there's a wonderful term called familex. Huh. And it is the family, private jokes, in jokes, nicknames, mm-hmm. stories. And that's one route to communicating with your children at every stage, but especially Especially when things are getting very volatile, to lighten it, and this is not diminishing or mocking or avoiding, but to put it in the context of something that happened to you when you were that age, or some experience the family went through because, like, bad vacations in a way are better than good vacations because you end up with better stories. You survived. Like a bad cruise is better than a good cruise.
2: Oh, (laughs) doctors, don't get us started on bad cruises. Every medical case study
3: starts with a bad
2: cruise story. Oh, that's really true.
3: (laughs) So the familect are, it's the inside jokes and your attaching to this child with something that is a keepsake. It's an emotional keepsake. The other part is other inspirational adults. So you mentioned coaches before, Vanessa, Mm -hmm. and teachers. For parents to be deeply respectful and honoring of the inspirational adults in their child's life, so the men in their daughter's life, instead of always introducing paranoia and suspicion because we have a fear-mongering media that leads us to believe that if a child who is in puberty and is 11 walks out the door, just walking out the door and getting into the bus, something will happen to her. The odds are extremely low to nil. And to give them independence, to be interested and responsible Respectful of the people who are helping to shape their character. And the other is everything sensory music, food, cooking, dancing, what you smell, being in nature, using all five senses in the three dimensional world is a wonderful way to calm volatile emotions. Mm. So let's go outside. Rather than, and this was one of the deepest problems of the pandemic, it got so stuffy emotionally. Yeah, it's like we were a
1: cocktail waiting to explode. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, we talk about skin hunger. On the podcast a lot, and I wish maybe, Wendy, maybe you know who coined that term. Maybe I even don't. you coined that term. Okay, yeah. we're we're seeking if you're the person is who,
2: endlessly. In well, search. because
1: Kara gives me credit for it, and I didn't come up with it. But no, you didn't, but I most definitely didn't. Um, but it's an we're amazing gonna find term. Out. We're going to find yeah, out. You and came up
2: with it for me, for you. <laughs> I
1: I was your conduit for skin hunger, but the role of the dog. You talk about the role of a family pet as the cheapest and best antidepressant. Is that the phrase that you use? And I was like, oh, we adopted my parents. We quote unquote rescued my parents' dog. Her name is Bimbo. We didn't name her. You rescued your dog, your parents' dog from your parents. From my parents. Let's just be very clear. (laughs) From my parents. But this dog saved my children. Yeah. She saved my children. They lie around her together. And they pet her and they talk to each other and they lie on the rug. And she, of course, you know, lies there. But that comment about don't worry if they don't walk the dog, don't Don't worry if they don't feed the pet, like that pet is giving them so much Mm -hmm. than just the responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about skin hunger and the importance of that sort of visceral... That role of that visceral touch and connection in this
3: stage of life. So, I am a wild eavesdropper. I would like to <laughs> only have my practice and eavesdrop all the time. And I was walking down the street yesterday and I heard a little boy say to his dad, I really, really, really want a puppy. And his father said to him, Well, that will happen when you start showing responsibility. And I just wanted to intervene. Did at, you do it? At that moment, I did not but the reduction in cortisol the increase in oxytocin we can go through all the neurochemicals and the hormones and tie them to the experience of petting a dog's fur and this is now documented it's so they're they're starting to study laughter in in the neurobiology labs it's amazing data It's just finally happening. So laughter is an instinct in humans, the way flapping wings is for birds. And petting animals is so soothing. Also, you can tell the animal all your problems Mm -hmm. and they don't give you any advice. They are always happy to see you. They are constantly excited and delighted by the world around them. And they don't forecast the future at all. And they don't hold grudges. What a combination. Amazing.
1: When you ask a group of nine-year-old girls, which I often do, who can you turn to? Who do you trust? Who is your most valued person who you tell? Or they'll say my pet. The first answer and the most popular answer is always my pet, my dog, my cat. And they say it. They are dead serious. Yeah. And it's it was such a valuable lesson to me both about who we trust and also the role of pets because I was of course the parent who for 17 years said I have nothing left to give. We can't get a pet. I have no more love to give, not realizing of course at the moment how much love my kids would receive from the pet themselves and I just had to get out of the way
3: and let that and let that happen. It's similar to the idea of I can't have another child because I don't have enough extra love without realizing that it's exponential and it creates its own energy That's and right. expanse. And of course, you know,
2: you, you were living in a, in a small apartment in New York City and there was that and sort of the
3: reality of having a pet too. And I don't like so, picking up shit off the sidewalk. Right.
2: Well, there's that yeah.
3: too. <laughs> so who's doing it with this rescued pet from your parents? Who's caring for the pet?
1: We are. I mean, right now my oldest is in charge of her and he's caring for her. They all take turns. It was a great excuse, as you said, to go outside during the pandemic, to calm emotions, to get space, to get exercise, to go for a walk. It was a great activity to do. Because if you say to your kid, let's go for a walk, just the two of us, they oh. look at you like you're out of your mind. But you, if you say- you we have, are
2: out of your mind.
1: We, <laughs> we have to take the dog for a walk. They're like, great, let's do it. But it was such a valuable lesson of the power of the soothing, the care, the lack of judgment, right? Somebody who's not saying a word, but just looking at you with love, which is something else you talk about, right? Sometimes our kids come downstairs and we just have to look at them with a loving expression and a smile and not say a
3: word. This is one of the problems with the human brain. We're much, much too smart. So we look at them and we think, unlike with the dog, about every single thing they've done in the past. And then we think about climate change and then we're done. (laughs) Like it's just, it's too it's too much to bear and then we're measuring them every minute this mm. is what the kids say to me all the time every minute of every day i think my whole future is on the line wow and and they do yeah
2: they feel that the weight of that different kids in different ways yes. right right it's um and sometimes they express it in really rough ways to their parents and i don't I don't want to end the conversation without giving parents a little bit of insight into what to do when your child delivers some real zingers mm. and when they don't come down the stairs and and sort of win this love and affection but it's a it's a low moment you you wrote in voice lessons a line that I loved you said nothing a teenager says is personal permanent or predictive. So relax and enjoy the show. It's got a short run and the seats are limited. How does one relax and enjoy the show when really harsh
3: news has just been delivered by your child? One thing to give yourself is the gift of time. And it's wonderful to model that for the kids So, what you can say, so your inner child is very interested in clapping back right that second in a very dramatic way. And to say, I need some time to think about that. First of all, if they're speaking to you in a very rude and condescending and aggressive and cruel way... You can always say to them, I can't hear what you're saying when you talk to me that way, and I want to hear it. So let's wait or try it again. Let's have another take. Let's have a do-over. And then you can say to a child about anything, I need some time to think about that to come up with my best answer, and I will get back to you. And then You have to get back to them. Right. If you use it as a dodge, they're not going to trust you. And it's a wonderful sentence to hand to them to use with their friends. So when they're experiencing peer pressure, for them to have you in their head saying to them— I need some time to think about that and I'm going to get back to you. And it buys them a little time with their friends. So their impulsive nature, the lack of development of their prefrontal cortex does not lead them to leap into a situation where they're in danger or soon in prison.
2: And what if they've said something that's particularly mean or disrespectful? Even if you need the time to cool off, can you say to them as the parent, that's not okay? to say those things in that way, and I need some time. Is, is the timeout that you so wisely advise parents to follow, and is a pearl that I've taken from you for many years, and it has been a gift to my parenting. But is that timeout okay, even when a child does or says something that is not?
3: So yes, I said nothing is personal or predictive or permanent. Yes, it is. It all is. <laughs> and They will say to you things that are more excruciating and on target than any therapist you ever had or ever will have and hurts your feelings more. And you can acknowledge that too, that you can say, it hurts my feelings when you say that, but I want to think about it, where it came from, or let's unpack this a little bit and see what the situation is. Because... They are the harshest with the people that they love and trust the most. The kids I worry about are the ones who cause a lot of trouble in school and behave beautifully at home. Those are kids who are scared of their parents or scared about their parents' marriage or their mom's depression or their father's substance problem. And so they are what we call parentified children. It's a role reversal. Those are the kids I worry about. The kids who are rude and crude and nasty with their parents, it's because it's like they're in their emotional bedroom slippers. (laughs) So they let it out, but you can respond from your heart, not just from your head.
1: I have found, I have learned to get better at laughing about myself or Mm -hmm. letting them laugh at me. So like the behavior that I do that really pisses them off, the nagging the running through lists, all of that, which makes them crazy. I kind of let them mock me in a slightly kind way and I laugh about it rather than having it come to a head in a really aggressive way.
2: In our house, we have taken it to a new level with COVID and we really do mock each other quite a bit. And it has been so healthy. Now, my kids are old enough, you know, they're 16 and, and almost 18, but we... We know each other's buttons and we know how to push each other's buttons and we know we know how to push each other's buttons. So the place for humor and mockery is a very interesting one because it allows you to do a little bit of it without, right, and then someone crosses the line.
1: Things said in jest are usually true. My almost 16-year-old, I walked into his room before he left for camp and he starts pacing around his room and saying would you clean up this shithole? This is disgusting. And he started imitating me and mocking me. And it was hilarious. It was hilarious. And I was like, done, you won. Like that, hands down, I'm going to walk out now because that was amazing. And it was like, he knew what I wanted. I knew what he didn't want. We met each other in the middle with a little humor. I think maybe he cleaned up his room a little bit, but it was like, it was only because I am slowly learning to allow that mockery or that humor to happen that he was able to be like get off my back yeah, he
3: read the script he read you, the script for me and it was amazing did it, it was a good line reading it was and and he's, delightful
1: and he was very funny so wendy we like to finish our podcast with some practical puberty tips car says pearls it's because vanessa likes alliteration i like alliteration the more peace, the better So I'd love for you, I mean, we talked about so much and there's so much to cover, but each of us chooses one kind of special practical tip to use. And I'm actually going to quote you in mine because I love it so much. In the book, you say, it's not a stretch to say the most valuable voice lesson is knowing when to keep quiet. And I'm I'm gonna carry that around with me. I might even I don't have any tattoos, but I might even get that as a tattoo on my arm. So for me, parenting kids through puberty and adolescence, it's the hardest and most important part is learning when to keep quiet. And I, I just find that so wonderful. So thank you for putting that out into the world. Do you wanna go next, Wendy, or do you want Cara to go? Kara go.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so much that is filtering through my mind right now. But I think the pearl that I'm pulling from this conversation is we talked a little bit about temperament, and your eyes got really wide when we. I wish that people could see you. You're, you got very animated because I think temperament and the personalities involved. They're such a driver of all of these dynamics, and they're the one driver that we kind of ignore. We're really good at talking about puberty. We're really good at talking about school. We're really good at talking about age and parenting roles and responsibilities of the kid. What we're not really good about doing is acknowledging who we are at our core. I will often describe to Vanessa that I've been in probably a thousand deliveries at this point and you see a baby come into the world, and that kid is who they are. That's so great. It is their temperament. And when your face lit up, it was just a reminder to me that so much of this does boil down to who the players are in the situation and taking responsibility for how, who you are and sharing that with other people, but also learning to recognize to see who the other person mm-hmm. is in the dynamic because i can be a little bit of a bulldozer sometimes and that works really well with another bulldozer because they like that dynamic maybe but maybe it doesn't work with a gentle flower and so i think that's what i'm taking which was this amazing visual cue
3: from you and Raising children through puberty is really being an emotional archaeologist because you're learning about their temperament in the context of hormones and with the girls increase in estrogen and testosterone and moms may be in perimenopause. Their hormones are going up and down. Dads are feeling, what is my role in this place? I so long to connect to these two, but I don't know how to do it. And I've been interviewing middle and high school age kids for years when I go around the country and around the world. So I want to tell you some of their advice to parents. Oh, that's great. Because they're the most wise of all. And I... I asked them their complaints about their parents. And this is really an example of teenagers as spirit guides in disguise. And one girl said, I said to my mom, oh, I hate it how my friends complain about getting B's. They think their life is over. And she said, why don't you feel like that? They think bad grades wipe out good. They don't understand that when you judge us, it adds to the judgment by classmates, teachers, college admissions people, and ourselves. My mom only thinks about three things, me driving, me choking, and me being abducted. (laughs) She has an amazing capacity to attach every single thing I do to one of those three things and to spend all her time worrying about it. And I wrote about this in the book, so I'm going to skip it, but I also asked them what they enjoy doing with their parents and sweet random acts of kindness that their parents do that their parents may not realize how much they appreciate These kids love their parents so much. And it was instant when I said, what do you enjoy doing with your parents? Or what are the sweetest things your parents do? None of the kids hesitated for a moment. And I thought that would surprise the parents were they to know that. But here's their advice. Reminders are good. Nagging is not. If you want to check my spelling and maybe my grammar, it doesn't mean I want you to rewrite the paper. My room is my temple. And Vanessa, that's what your son was saying Mm -hmm. to you when he walked around imitating (laughs) you in his room. There's a difference between pressure and motivation. Please let me make mistakes. Don't act like there are only two positions at any moment, ahead or behind. And this is the quiet part. Please listen instead of thinking up the next thing you're going to say. And the slogan, I I think this is a 12-step slogan, WAIT, W-A-I-T, and it stands for Why Am I Talking? Keep doing what you're doing, but calm down. And every single group of kids all over the country said this final thing that I'm going to say. Take a chill pill, chillax, take a chill pill relax
1: <laughs> sage words Wendy thank you so much You're this welcome. has been just a privilege and an honor and a total joy thank you for being here with
3: us thank you for having me and thank you for doing this podcast this is so such a needed resource for parents, it's a gap in parent education that is so critical. And then the trickle down is the great value to the teenagers going through this process.
1: We hope so. We hope so. Thank you so much.
3: You're welcome.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at ThePubertyPodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out MyOomla.com or Dynamogirl.com. Bye.